Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing No Country for Old Men. No Country for Old Men was written by Cormac McCarthy and was published in 2005. And the film adaptation, which came out in 2007, was directed by the Coen brothers. And we are finally discussing a Cormac McCarthy book. Yes. Um, he has had several adaptations, but I think this is probably the most famous one. Yeah, there's also one of The Road, mm-hmm. which we loved that book, but it is devastating and the film is devastating. And I do not know <laughs> if we can handle if it. If we can do it. Maybe episode. one day. Maybe. And then Last of the Mohicans is also... No, that's not him. What am I thinking of? Um, that That's a different author. I know it is, but like, didn't he write another one that was about... All the Pretty Little Horses? Maybe. Blood Meridian? I can't remember now. <laughs> as soon as I started saying it, I'm like, no, I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he recently passed away, um, and he's, you know, well-regarded as one of the great American novelists of the 20th century and the 21st century, I think. So we were like, oh, it'd be a good time to do one of his books. And we've done a couple other, one other Coen Brothers adaptation, and then one sole Coen Brothers. Yes, by Joel Coen. Yeah. Which I also, I think I read that Ethan Coen is coming out with a movie. Oh. Which is weird and interesting. Exploring side projects. Yeah. But we did do True Grit, which was directed by both of them. Yes. Um, which is an adaptation. So go listen to that if you haven't. And then we did Macbeth, which was directed by Joel Cohen only. Yes. Yeah, so we have done a little bit of the Cohen brothers in the past, but I mean, this is kind of, it's hard to call anything. They've, they've done so many fantastic movies for whatever reason. This was the one that like uh, critics and audiences and people latched onto and was like, this is their time. This is their movie. They won best picture for it. Best Directors, I believe. I actually kind of... Okay. I didn't look up all of the accolades they won. I know Javier Bardem won for this movie. It probably won a lot of technical stuff for it. I think editing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which actually, the Coen brothers also edited this movie. But I think for this movie and definitely other films, they have uh, submitted it to the Oscars under a pseudonym. (laughs) Because apparently the Oscars are very tough on people submitting two people for one Oscar. Oh. They will do it for directors if they have an established career doing that. But I think they're even harder on editing. And so they were just like, we'll just make up a name and say they did it. That's so interesting. I think they've done that for writing also, uh, writing credits for films too. <laughs> so the Coen brothers are just such a weird pair. Yeah. Like, watching them in interviews, they're just so funny. They have such a dry sense of humor. They don't do a lot of interviews. They famously did a really long interview with, like, a rug magazine for The Big Lebowski when (laughs) that was coming out. Like, I think the interviewer actually was the one to cut off the interview (laughs) because they were going on for so long. Oh, my God. That's great. But they're just such an interesting pair. And this movie, uh, I think by a lot of people's standard, is maybe their best. And this has been one of your favorite films for a long time, right? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, like, top ten or anything, but, I mean, it's really... It's one of those movies that's just kind of, like, flawless in its execution. Mm -hmm. You know, there's almost, like, no issues with it or anything that could be, like, eh, that could be better, or, you know what I mean? It's just kind of, like, so perfect in a way. Yeah, Let's uh, let's get into it, though. Yeah. We start off the movie with a um, bunch of scenes of the landscape here. We're in Texas. We're in the West, right? 
Um, and we get a voiceover from Sheriff Bell, who's played by Tommy Lee Jones. And this coincides and is similar to the book because the book has all of these, I call them, or people have called them interludes, where it's the sheriff just kind of like talking and it's sort of in his head and it's his perspective. And these interludes are intercut with the action that's happening in the story. And the movie doesn't do this. The movie doesn't have this voiceover come back. But it is an interesting way to, I think, set the scene for this movie. And like I said, the book is very much like we get Sheriff Bell's perspective very frequently throughout the action of the story. Yeah, occasionally parts of some of these interludes are like dialogue is created from them, like Bell telling his deputy about like some crime, about people killing old people and taking their (laughs) social security checks. That's from one of the interludes in the book. So occasionally there's parts taken out of the interludes and turned into dialogue. But yeah, as far as like pure voiceover, or direct coming from Sheriff Bell, this beginning is the only part. Yeah. And I think this beginning is very iconic. I, I have a coworker, uh, Bobby, who would quote this. He would just start going like, my grandfather was a lawman, his father too. And he would just start going into it. So it is kind of funny and iconic in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it sets up the story really well because he's commenting on the nature of evil, right? Yeah. And if people are born evil and this story of this person who he sent to the electric chair and like do people why do people commit crime right i i love the way it was phrased where you know it's a boyfriend who killed his girlfriend and he said they called it a crime of passion but he said there wasn't any passion involved yeah you know mm-hmm. kind of like this cold just evil right just yeah. kind of this senseless violence and then we get to witness this violence firsthand As this voiceover is going on in the film, we see a character who we later know as Anton Chigurh being arrested and put in the back of a police car. He is taken to the police headquarters where the deputy has his back turned on him. And I love you see him in the background, him like sliding out of his handcuffs. He sneaks up behind the deputy and strangles him in probably one of the most iconic scenes in the film. Yeah, it's not great, Ian. Also, (laughs) uh, Javier Bardem in in this role. I mean, I'm sure we'll discuss it more as we go. But his face is in this, like, grimace. Yeah. And then it kind of, like, turns into a smile. And I don't like it. It's almost like he is having sex or, like, he climaxed or something. Like, he kind of gives his, like... Like this exhale when it's done, right? Yeah. And it's, like, sexual in a weird way. I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, like, it's so brutal. It's so violent. Uh, All the scuff marks on the floor from where the deputy's feet were kicking. Like, Mm -hmm. it's probably the most visceral part of, like, the whole film. Yeah, because he doesn't just strangle him. Like, his throat is also cut. Yeah. So. And I mean, like, we will touch on it multiple times. But, like, so much of this is mentioned verbatim in the book. Yeah. Like, this scene described exactly... And then, like, the cuts on Anton's wrists from where he pulled back on the handcuffs. He goes into the bathroom and takes the handcuffs off. He bandages his hands in the sink. And, like, you see all of this in the film. And, like, so many times, these, like, micro details are pulled right out of the book. Almost as if the book was, like, a screenplay in itself, right? Yeah, yeah. It kind of feels that way. Yeah. We get a little bit later in the book, like, kind of a backstory about him being arrested. And almost like Sugar 
he sugar had this confrontation with some people in a restaurant and they got into this like fight outside the restaurant he ends up killing this guy and then the police like pick him up and he kind of like almost lets them arrest him to see if he could get out of it yeah and this is kind of he reflects back on this later later in this story after he's been injured he kind of mentions almost like it's been a long time coming because i think he was maybe getting like bold or like bored or needing that kind of challenge in a way. It sounds like a sociopath, right? Oh, for sure. And so he's kind of, that's when he fills in the backstory of why he got arrested at all, which in the film, you never get any context as to why he was pulled over or arrested. Yeah. Let's go to... Well, we do have to talk about him escaping, uh, Sugar escaping. Oh, right. There's one more piece of that where... <laughs> he's not done killing Ian. He's not. His His spree isn't over yet. He takes the cop car and pulls over an unwitting victim and takes out his air tank, which you're like, what is this? What is this thing he has? Puts it to the driver's head, pulls a a trigger and kills him. Yeah. We find out later. And I don't know if the movie ever tells us what this is. Well, I think it's implied later because... when the sheriff's talking. The sheriff apology. tells the story about slaughtering cows and how they changed it to with that mechanism that kills them. Yeah. So I think like you as the audience are supposed to like put that together. Yeah, they don't outright say it. The book outright says it, that this is, yeah, a tool that they use to slaughter cows. So. Pretty brutal. Very uh, hunter prey. Yes. Very like lambs to a slaughter. <laughs> very, very on the nose there. Yeah, for sure. And also just like so effective in a creepy way, like like efficient. You just watch him doing it and the guy's just confused, right? Like, what is this thing? And he's like, oh, just hold still. And then it's just like in an instant it's done, right? Yeah. It's like in a way more effective than even using a gun. Yeah. Very, very creepy. Yes. We can go to Moss now. Okay, now, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Our introduction to Moss is him uh, hunting in the fucking middle of nowhere in Texas. Again, a little like nod to like hunting, being hunted, like predator and prey. Uh Uh-huh. There's a lot of that in this story. He is uh, shooting, what are they? Antelope? Antelope? Yeah. Something? (laughs) (laughs) He hits one and it takes off, and so he begins to track it. He discovers a different trail of blood from what he realizes is a dog, and he follows that trail of blood to what is a crime scene. Yeah. It's in the middle of the fucking desert, right? And there's just all these trucks, all these dead bodies, and it looks vicious, right? And I like how this scene kind of takes its time, right? Yeah. We're following Moss. Moss is just looking at the evidence, right? Nobody's moving. He's being very careful. And he sees, like, all the bodies. He sees, like, the shells. He opens the trucks and sees what's in them. He finds heroin in the back of the one truck. There's one guy that's still alive, and he keeps asking for water, and he's Mexican, so he's asking in Spanish. Moss doesn't have any water on him. But he's putting it together and then he starts to track because he's like, there's got to be one more guy. Well, and even in the book, you get another level of detail where he notices uh, that there's one car seat where the window was shot out. And he like rolls up the window to see the bullet holes and notices that there's no body there and he doesn't see a body near that area. And he knows there's like a last man standing 
But he thinks, based at least in the book on the evidence, that he's wounded, though, that yeah. he's been shot, too. So he pieces this together. He kind of is like, well, he'd probably go downhill. And in the movie, he says, like, he'd stop under shade. And I love he sees a tree and you see after this shot holds on the tree for a while that, oh, there's a figure there. Yeah. And I just love that Moss like kneels there for a while and is just watching yeah for a long time and like look checking his watch he's waiting right he's being very smart he doesn't want to just blindly approach and assume this guy is dead yes and get shot i i watched or i listened to a clip from another podcast about this movie and they called it competency porn (laughs) where just all the characters in it including moss are just very thoughtful and careful And they just don't do things out of stupidity. But when the other character that they're against is the same way, it builds this great tension throughout the movie. Yeah, because they feel matched. Yes. Yeah. And this scene is just such a great introduction to how uh, smart and kind of methodical Moss can be. And we find out later that he's a Vietnam War vet. Mm -hmm. So he has a lot of skills. For sure. He eventually does approach the man, sees that he's dead. Takes his gun, though. Yep. <laughs> which, again, is smart, right? Yeah. And sees that there's this briefcase slash satchel and a shit ton of money inside. Here's a question, Adina. Did the people in this deal specifically request this size document case filled to the brim with money? Mm-hmm. Or did they ask for a specific amount of money and then they had a custom case built to be the exact size of all this money. I don't know. Or Ian. was it just an arbitrary amount of money in a random case? Well, we do find out later that there's a hidden transmitter inside. Yes. So I, I feel like they designed it to look really full so you wouldn't rifle through it, right? Mm. Too much? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. So you wouldn't, I don't know. Like take the money out? But like... I'm being dumb anyway. I know well, they probably it's, don't want it like rattling around. I right? guess. I mean, it just looks cool <laughs> ultimately, look which cool. is if it was like a half full case of money, you'd be like, eh, that's not that much money, even though it's still over a million dollars, probably. Mm-hmm. Two point something million dollars, yeah, I think is what they said. A little over two, I think. Uh, Moss takes the case and heads out and ends up coming back home. He takes some of the guns with him, too. And this is where we meet his wife, Carla Jean, uh, CJ, as I call her in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote so many. I wrote Laura Jean at one point. I wrote, <sighs> I wrote like a few different names because I kept forgetting what it actually was. I do really like Carla Jean, though, and yeah. like their dynamic. And I like Moss a lot, too, because Moss kind of has this real dry sense of humor and kind of, but like they give and take from each other, right? Like, yeah. I mean, we just get really this one scene. Yeah, ju- and just like a few moments later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like he walks through the house and she's like, "What's in the case?" And he's like, "It's full of money." And she goes, "That'll be the day." And <laughs> they just have a really good dynamic, which I think is important because, like you said, they don't actually get a lot of screen time together. Yeah, I do want to say though, in the book, we find out that she is nineteen. Currently. Currently. And that they got married three years ago, which means that she was 16 when they got married. And you don't know how old he is for quite a bit of the book until later you find out he's 36. Which means he was 33 when they got married. And you know what? I just don't like it. It's gross. It's weird. There's a comment that Sheriff Bell makes later where he's like talking to Carla Jean and she he's like, 
how old are you? And she's like, I'm 19. I know I look younger. I know. And she so looks younger. I'm like, well, three years ago when you were 16, how old, did, how you old look? did you look? Yeah. And he makes a comment like, oh, yeah, you know, I married my wife right when she turned 18. And I'm like, stop talking about. <laughs> do not brag about this. I don't, Stop dating teenagers. Yeah. Do not do it. I don't like it. Um, in the movie, she's definitely younger than him. But I don't think she's 19. No. And also, I believe, like, with his mustache and hair and stuff, I'm like, he's he might actually be younger than he looks even. Well, it's like the 80s, right? Yeah. People, like, look more aged with, like, a certain... And he's kind of got that, like, rugged, outdoors, kind of, like, crust, like... <laughs> Like on on them, right? They just have a yeah. crust over them. Although, if he was in the Vietnam War, he probably is in his thirties. So that's true. Yeah, <laughs> this is the, the movie takes place in nineteen eighty. So yeah, uh, Moss wakes up at, at in the middle of the night and just goes, "All right," <laughs> and you see him filling up a gallon jug of water, and he heads out back to the crime scene to give water to that man who was dying. Mm -hmm. And this is like such an interesting choice for him to make. Because earlier he was so calculating and, like, careful and thoughtful. And he kind of seemed dismissive of that man at first. Yeah. But now you can see that it was clearly, like, weighing on him. And he's going back out to give him some water. Even though he's almost certainly a goner. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I was thinking about it. And I was like, here he is making a mistake. Yes. Right? He's going back to this scene and... Basically, as soon as he gets there, he sees that this guy has been shot, freshly shot. Yeah. And sees that there's men up by his truck and it turns into this chase. And this is an error, right? But when you think about it, this tips him off that he's being chased. And so he heads out. He has Carla Jean leave. Like, they leave their trailer. If he didn't go back, they would have been shot dead in their trailer. Because of the transmitter. But don't... Oh, you're right. They, they would have tracked them straight to the trailer. They still would have had the transmitter. Because I was like, they f they take the, um, like, whatever, the ID registration off stuff his off his truck, which I think is what leads them to the trailer. But you're right. They still would have had the transmitter and they probably wouldn't have left. So... Yeah. Yeah, in a way, you're right. Like... In, in a way, it's inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no matter what he chose, even though it seems like he made a mistake here... It's like, no matter what he would have done, I think the same thing would have happened. That's a really good... In fact, like, he probably would have been more blindsided by it if this situation hadn't happened. Yeah. Yeah. This scene, when he's being chased and the trucks are behind him and he's being shot at and the lighting, it's like just at the crack of dawn. Mm -hmm. There's lightning in the distance. It's so gorgeous. It's perfect. It's such a great scene. I mean, the cinematography in this film is amazing, especially these beginning scenes where we're seeing a lot of the desert, right? Cinematography was done by Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins, yes. Yeah. And then later on, too, even though we move into, like, more uh, cities and towns and hotel rooms and things like that, it's still shot just so intentionally. I, I watched a really good video about how this movie was shot and like this guy who I think lighting and cinematography is his whole deal. He was explaining like how they set up certain rigs of lights like on the <laughs> roofs to like simulate like natural lighting, but how it's like way more complicated. Like even in scenes when it looks like it's being lit by a lamp in a room, there's actually like four other lights like in <laughs> off screen and like it's such a fine art. 
And Roger Deakins is just such a master of it. There's some shots even like when Moss is still first looking at the crime scene and he opens a door and sees a body kind of like slumped into like the foot area of the truck shot up. Like even just the way that single insert shot was framed was something was like about it was beautiful. Yeah. Like it was just so well composed. And I also think there's a great mixture of cinematography and highlighting like the set design and the costumes of the characters, right? Where they kind of complement each other. Like at one point, uh, Shiger is walking up to a door and it's kind of like this, like a glass window in the door, but it's like circles that look like uh, like the bottoms of bottles or something. And it's yeah. yellow. And his um, silhouette becomes more clear as he approaches. But you're just looking at this really cool door for like <laughs> f- five seconds before he enters. And it like even that is distinctive and cool and how they're showing off like their cool set design. Right. Yeah. Like all the elements of this movie just like gel so well together. Totally agree. And Moss is running for his life, ends up running into this, like, ravine, jumping into this river. Oh, yeah. And then there's this dog that's swimming after him (laughs) in the river, which is not in the book, but that was so tense. My God. There's one shot of the dog, though, (laughs) when it's just his head above the water. He's just like... (sighs) like, He seems so unthreatening in that one moment. But... Oh, my God. Like the tension of that part where like Moss gets out of the water. He has to disassemble his gun, like like blow it out and like reassemble it and shoot the dog before it gets to him. Yeah. And the dog just running at him. Oh, my God. It's so tense and so well done. (laughs) Once again, showing Moss's competency as well. Yeah. Let's uh, switch over to Shiger for a minute. He has stopped to get gas at a gas station (laughs) and just... The very nice man Uh, who is the gas station attendant and owner is like just chatting with him, being like, how's the weather, where you're from? And Shigur is so offended. He's so pissed. (laughs) He's like, he does an impression of him. Oh, yeah. That's like uh, imitating his accent and everything. Yeah. And then is just like really weird and threatening to this gas station attendant until the gas station guy is like, well, uh, I have to close up. Like, we're closing now. What time do you close? <laughs> uh, now, we close now. Now is not a time. What time do you close? Oh, my God. He's just, like, relishing in, like, grilling this guy and making him uncomfortable. Uh, and once again, what something the Coen brothers do so well is casting great character actors for these small bit roles. There's so many, like, good, small-town kind of yokel characters in this movie yeah this is one of them like the guy who plays the gas station attendant is so good and the scene is just so tense and so uncomfortable the one shot i love is he's eating peanuts the whole time shigur is and then he sets the wrapper on the table and you just watch it for a few seconds just slowly uncrumpling and it's like it's tense It's tension itself, like watching that uncrumple. It's perfect. I just want to read some from the book here. And I mean, we've already said this, but so much of the movie is pulled just straight from the book. Um, And I'm going to skip around a little bit to give you this scene. But this is the scene where uh, we have the coin toss. Chigurh took a 25 cent piece from his pocket and flipped it spinning into the bluish glare of the fluorescent lights overhead. He caught it and slapped it on the back of his forearm, just above the bloody wrappings. Call it, he said. Call it? Yes, 
For what? Just call it. Well, I need to know what it is we're calling here. How would that change anything? The man looked at Chigurh's eyes for the first time, blue as lapis, at once glistening and totally opaque, like wet stones. You need to call it, Chigurh said. I can't call it for you. It wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't even be right. Just call it. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what the date is on this coin? No. It's 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And I'm here. And I've got my hand over it. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Heads, then. Shigur uncovered the coin. He turned his arm slightly for the man to see. Well done, he said. He picked the coin from his wrist and handed it across. What do I want with that? Take it. It's your lucky coin. I don't need it. Yes, you do. Take it. The man took the coin. I gotta close now, he said. Don't put it in your pocket. Sir? Don't put it in your pocket. Where do you want me to put it? Don't put it in your pocket. You won't know which one it is. All right. Anything can be an instrument, Shigur said. Small things. Things you wouldn't even notice. They pass from hand to hand. People don't pay attention. And then one day there's an accounting. And after that, nothing is the same. Well, you say, it's just a coin, for instance. Nothing special there. What could that be an instrument of? You see the problem. To separate the act from the thing, as if the parts of some moment in history might be interchangeable with the parts of some other moment. How could that be? Well, it's just a coin. Yes, that's true. Is it? The proprietor watched him go, watched him get into the car. The car started and pulled off from the gravel apron onto the highway south. The lights never did come on. He laid the coin on the counter and looked at it. He put both hands on the counter and just stood leaning there with his head bowed. So I didn't read like the whole section. I did skip around a little bit, but I just love how simple the language is. And this is definitely the style of the book. Yeah. Like when you have dialogue, it's very brief and quick and kind of back and forth. But a lot of it's just like descriptions of what's happening. Yeah. Like you rarely get into a character's head at all. It's yeah. just describing what they're doing, even when it's and that's in a lot of ways, the films feel so truthful to the book and the tone of the book. Right. Like even when Moss is out in the desert hunting, like, there's no internal monologue of Moss in the book and what he's thinking or anything. Yeah. Uh, it's just, he did this. He went here. He did that. And a huge testament, too, to Cormac McCarthy's dialogue. Because the characters each have such a specific voice that I think really shines through. And the Coen brothers are known for, like, really great dialogue in their films. And they write their films themselves. So the fact that they didn't feel a need... To, to mess. change it. Yeah, to change much of anything in the dialogue, I think, shows how good it is in the book to begin with. Yeah, for sure. This is just such a great scene, and I'm, I'm glad I got to read a little, a little bit of it from the book. Uh, Shigur ends up going to the crime scene out in the desert with two other men that it seems like they're all working for the same person, and they're trying to recover this money from this drug deal gone wrong. What I don't understand, though, is that Shigur ends up killing these men. I don't understand this either. And we Dana. never get an answer. No. I, like, you would think, oh, Shigur is going to go rogue and take this money for himself. But that's not what's going on. No. And I just have no idea why he kills these men. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, he's a psychopath and, like, you could argue he doesn't need a reason. But they, I don't know, like... 
Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, Wells gets sent after him maybe because of what he does here. Yeah, like he's not listening to orders or they think he's gone rogue or something. And Shigur later seems to take offense to that idea that he's like forgotten the mission or whatever because he hasn't. (laughs) So I, I don't understand what his his choice here is. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, Sugar ends up going to Moss's trailer after this because he has figured out from his truck that who this is and where he can find them. Um, at this point, though, Moss and Carla Jean have already left. So Carla Jean has gone to be with her mother and Moss has gone to Del Rio to kind of lie low for a while. So Sugar gets to their trailer And it's just really ominous, like looks through their mail, kind of gets their phone bill and is able to like track some of their phone calls to these places that they end up going. Uh, Drinks their milk, Ian. (laughs) Yep. Just sits there, watch it, like stares into the blank TV, which once again, this was like a detail written in the book that he like stared at his dark reflection in the television, right? Yeah. Drinks milk like a crazy person. (laughs) Well, and then we have the sheriff and one of his deputies arrive. And the sheriff also went out to the crime scene. So he's kind of like following in Sugar's footsteps here. And then ends up coming to the trailer like not long after Sugar left. Like they touch the milk and it's sweating. Yeah. And they discover that like, oh, the lock cylinder was punched out, which Sugar uses his... uh cattle stun gun to like knock locks out which is really cool yeah and so like bell is beginning to like put things together right he was at the crime scene in the desert he found moss's truck but he doesn't think moss would be involved in the drug trade which is why he went to the trailer so it's kind of like moss is on the run sugar is after him and then uh sheriff bell is kind of like trailing behind right Mm -hmm. yeah and we have these players all together and then we also have the mexican cartel who are looking for this money as well so moss is in del rio and he's lying low he gets a motel he's just chilling like i think he thinks that everything is fine i mean he's still on alert but he ends up coming back to his motel room after being out all day And he just notices that something is off about, like, the blinds in the window of his motel room. Yeah. And he gets suspicious, so he gets a different motel room that night and then comes back the next day. And he had hidden the money in the air duct of the motel. Yeah. Which I'm curious about because, like, if the the cartel found that room because of the sensor... Did they get there and they're like, where the fuck is it? Like, we don't know. So I don't they know. Decided to wait or I, I don't like I mean, it's possible that they just couldn't find it. And we're like, we'll just wait till he gets here. Yeah. But uh, Moss being the smart, cunning son of a bitch that he is. <laughs> I love him getting the other room from the woman and the way it's played out in um, uh, in the film. Because he's like, yeah, I want to get another room. And she's like, okay, well, you can have uh, 118, which is right next to your room. And he's like, nah, I'd rather have 86, but on the other side of the motel. (laughs) She's like, what? (laughs) She's like, it has two double beds in it. Yeah. In a similar great scene in the film, he goes to a camping supply store trying to buy just tent poles. And the guy's like, well, if you give me the model number, I can order the tent poles. And he's like, I can't buy just the tent poles. And he's like, no, sir. And he's like, okay, I want to buy a tent. What kind? Kind of the most poles. (laughs) Like, the dialogue is so good. And similarly with the editing, there's a really interesting 
editing to this movie, there's kind of a rhythm and a pace to it where there's almost like this same length of time after the last line of a scene, right? Like kind of just a second and then it goes on to the next thing. Yeah. And then as soon as that scene, like there's a second pause and then like, I don't know, there's just a rhythm to it that is like very repetitive, but just kind of keeps the movie going. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. It really does feel like it moves quickly, even though it's very tense. Yeah. And I mean, it's like a two hour film, but it moves really well. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it ever drags. And yeah, you're right. It does have a rhythm to it. And I, the scenes of dialogue, too, it just feels like it flows really well. Yeah, they're just kind of like perfectly scripted, perfectly edited. I also read an interesting thing that like as far as the amount of film, because they measure, measure film in literal like feet of film that they shoot. <laughs> yeah. And the Coen brothers shot like. I forgot, like 150,000 feet of film when like the average is like for a movie that length, like 700,000. Wow. So they basically shot what they needed and nothing else. And maybe I think like two scenes were cut from the film in total, but it really just felt like they knew what they needed. They got it. They had a clear vision, right? They probably storyboarded a lot of what they wanted to do ahead of time. And I think that makes a huge difference. Um, So at the same time that Moss is trying to Like, so he gets the room on the other side because he knows that the air ducts are connected. So he's trying to use the tent poles and some hangers to get the suitcase with the money in it from the air duct from the other side. But at the same time, Shigur is following the transmitter in the money. We see him following the beeps. It's very ominous, right? (laughs) He's approaching. In the movie, these two things are happening at the exact same time. In the book... Moss is able to get the money out of the air duct. Then he leaves. Then Shigeru arrives. So definitely um, amping up the tension a lot in this scene. This is like one of, for me, one of the tensest Uh, scenes. Also, I kind of forgot how it was edited, but it cuts back and forth to Anton and Moss just so back and forth, like very, and just kind of short little spurts where you just kind of see what Moss is doing. Then you see what Shigeru is doing. Then Moss. And talk about, like, the competency porn aspect of it. Uh, Shigur rents a room, right? And he goes into his room, and he, like, sees the light switch, and then closes the door, and then comes back in and turns the light on. Almost like he's surprising someone. And I remember you being like, what's he doing? Yeah. And then he goes, and he kind of, like, feels one of the walls of his room. And it's very unclear. Then he takes off his boots, so he's in his sock feet. (laughs) As the book describes it. And he walks with his air tank. And this is when he bursts into the room that has the cartel members waiting. The the Moss's room. Yeah. He shoots out the cylinder, bursts in. And this is when you realize what he was doing because he knows where the light switch is now. So he quickly turns that on, shoots the one guy in the bed. And then that wall that he was feeling earlier in his room that he knows is thin. He just shoots that. In case anyone's like hiding in the closet, yeah. which I don't think anyone was, but it's just kind of like a precautionary yeah. measure. Yeah. Here's the thing, Adina. There's two men who were in the bathroom. Yeah. Why were they, Why both, were in the- they <laughs> both in the bathroom? <laughs> they were either having sex or doing drugs. <laughs> I'm more inclined to say the sex thing because I feel like nobody would care if they were doing drugs in the the main room. I know they are in the cartel. But there's two members in the bathroom (laughs) when Sugar kicks down the door. And while all this is happening, Moss is trying to very quietly (laughs) 
<laughs> use his like pole to pull the money through the air duct and it's like noisy and so it's very suspenseful because if Shigur hears this yeah he's gonna come after him yes <laughs> it's great it's so well done uh Shigur kills like all three cartel members in the room he tries to ask them how they found Moss because he's not sure uh but he realizes he knows the vent is suspicious and he sees like the marks in like the dust yeah. of the case, but like knows that it's gone. Mm-hmm. And so Moss escapes this time. Yeah. Moss gets away. Um, Around this time, though, is we get a new player in the game. We get Wells, Carson Wells, who is also a bounty hunter and who knows Anton Chigurh. And we have him meeting in this like kind of high rise office building with this like vague businessman who we can just assume is like some kind of shady guy. Yeah. Played by the amazing character actor, Stephen Root. (laughs) I haven't seen this movie in a while. So I was like, oh, my God, that's Stephen Root. Like I never recognized him before. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, he Root Root's character is questioning Wells about Chigurh. What does he know about him? And I, I love the line Wells gives, like, he's a psychopathic homicidal maniac, but there's plenty of them around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, kind of hyping him up, but also taking him down a little bit in the same sentence. Yeah, and this businessman wants Wells to track him down and kill him. Because um, I guess they're assuming that Sugar has gone rogue again kind of like just killing his own men in that one scene yeah. and then searching for the money, probably not checking in with his superiors on his progress. So they've got a lot of problems. They have the money gone. Uh, I think the drugs are gone. I don't know who took the drugs and we have sugar on the loose. So Wells um, played by Woody Harrelson is going to go and try to find sugar. Something interesting and worth talking about here. We both watched the same uh, video by Wisecrack about this film. And it really uh, summarized a really important thing about this movie and, and the book, too, to be uh, frank. And that is kind of the mashup of genres in this story, specifically Western, which is very obvious by the setting and like the uh, outfits and everything like that. But also it's neo-noir influences as well. yeah. And kind of how you could almost see this whole story as kind of the colliding of these two genres in a way. Yeah. And I liked how the movie talked about different phases of Westerns through the years. Like you have the very traditional Westerns and then you have revisionist Westerns who are kind of more focused on antiheroes and um, kind of the pursuit of justice, but kind of these more morally gray characters. Yeah. Um, And then we're coming into films that have been like labeled as neo-Westerns, which are even more ambiguous in their morals, right? Justice is not served and it's very dark. We have that Western setting, but like you were saying, it feels more like the landscape and also the tone of an OR where, you know, the good guys don't win. Yeah. And the bad guys often get away. Well, and Tommy Lee Jones's character of Sheriff Bell very much embodies that like traditional old timey, like uh, binary morality, good versus evil. Like he literally wears a white hat, you know, and he's kind of thrown into this world of, 
you know, moral ambiguity of psychopathic killers and Moss's character who isn't a bad guy, but like jumped at this opportunity for wealth. Yeah. And him kind of following this bloodshed that as the story goes, becomes more and more just like chaotic and awful and meaningless. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a really interesting way to kind of like view this story as a whole, right? The like, I mean, through genre, it's kind of commenting on morality and good versus evil and these big topics, but it's very much aware of the genres that it exists in. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really effective, too. I Mm -hmm. think it asks a lot of interesting questions. And I think the setting makes you expect the action and the violence, but maybe not the outcomes, right? And so you're surprised. Yeah, and even by, like, noir standards, the way the story progresses still surprises you because noirs aren't necessarily known for their, like, climactic finales. Like, they do oftentimes undercut the story a bit and kind of go for an anticlimax in a way. But, like, this story goes even farther with that, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. Um, just really an interesting film and like the Coen brothers are really bringing a lot of different genres together in this movie. And as well as movies and like the Coen brothers are such competent filmmakers and clearly so knowledgeable that like nothing is unintentional, right? And there's so much to be analyzed and picked apart and examined that it becomes really worth, like it's one of those movies where I'm like, I want to watch a bunch of videos. Oh yeah. And find out people's analysis of it and like their thoughts and like the influences and what they're drawing from because you can have like you know people analyzing it through the genre influences right or like from philosophical standpoints yeah like nihilism or like chaos and that kind of stuff like uh there's so many ways to examine it and that's i think what makes it so enduring in a lot of ways yeah i completely agree so after the motel incident Moss uh, leaves and he goes to a hotel like a couple towns over, I think, called Eagle Pass. And he he checks in. And I love as a kind of a reference back to the beginning of the movie. He's just laying there in bed, like (laughs) staring at the ceiling and then says something. He says there just ain't no way. There just ain't no way. And he realizes like there's no way they could have found me. So he goes through uh, the money case and discovers one of the uh, bill stacks is actually $1 bills with a cutout in it with a transponder in it. Mm -hmm. So he's been carrying this around with him the whole time. Yeah, and this plays out a little bit differently in the book and the movie. In the book, he kind of has a little bit more time to, like, prepare. In the movie, it seems like the moment he realizes it is the moment he realizes that he's not alone in the hotel and someone's stalking him. He tries calling down to the desk and no one answers. Yeah. And it's so great. It's so tense. In the book, he actually hides under the bed and Shigur enters the room and then he kind of pops out and is like, don't move. He gets him to like drop his gun. And he kind of like, I mean, he has him like in his sights and he could shoot him right then and there, but he won't. Mm Mm-hmm. And he kind of like is backing away and is like, stop chasing me, basically. And he tries to make his escape. In some ways, it's similar. As he's leaving the hotel, Shigur starts shooting at him from the second floor. Mm -hmm. He gets hit. And then in the book, actually, the cartels show up. Yeah. And there's guys in cars who come out. And And then then it's just a crazy shootout. It's a crazy shootout where Shigur is like uh, preoccupied. But 
Shigur shoots Moss and then Moss unloads his gun at Shigur and that's when he gets hit in the leg. Yeah. So kind of similar results, but mostly the cartel showing up is a big difference. It's causing a lot of chaos. Yeah. Yeah. In the movie, it's just the two of them and they get into this face off. But similarly, both of them are injured in different ways. Yes. Moss in the side and Shigur in the leg. And Moss uh, ends up just like hobbling his way over the border into Mexico and he's super injured and like ends up, we see him do this in the, in the book. We don't actually know what happens. We see him like throw the case over the fence into this grass. Yeah. To kind of like get the money off of him. But where he knows it's happened, it won't be found. Yeah. Yeah. So he gets into Mexico and gets treated at a hospital for his wounds uh, but Shigur is also injured. You know, he's been shot in the leg real bad. And we get the really iconic scene in the film where he, uh, like, kind of has this, like, he turns a car into a bomb, I know. I'm like, is, would this work? I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know if it would blow up the way that it does, but I could imagine it working to some degree. He puts, like, a piece of cloth in the gas tank and lights it. Yeah. And as he's walking away, the car blows up. And, of course, he doesn't look at it because he's a badass. You don't look <laughs> at an exploding car, Adina. You just walk away. You just walk away. <laughs> I mean, uh, I just, there's so much good cinematography. Like, I just think of when Shigur stands at the car and opens the gas cap or the 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 panel to the gas tank and at the same level you see his gunshot wound yeah and you're just getting both pieces of information of watching him doing this to this car and seeing his leg mm-hmm. uh but of course the car blowing up is a diversion so he can uh kind of raid the pharmacy without anyone noticing and yeah. take all the supplies he needs and then we get to watch a fun little surgery scene surgery self-surgery self-surgery <laughs> Everyone's favorite board game, self-surgery. I love that uh, we get to see Shigur, like, operating on himself. And then we had that scene earlier when Moss, like, ends up looking at his side wound and then just vomits. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that would be me. Between those two options, I'd be that one. (laughs) I love those Shigur is trying to, like, kick his boot off of his injured leg. And... He's kind of like looking away and you, he just looks annoyed, right? He's like pissed. upset. He's like upset at himself. He's not <laughs> even in pain. He's just annoyed. Yeah, he's like, God damn it. There's <laughs> a lot of blood in his boot. I, I noticed that specifically. Oh, my God. There's just so much blood in this movie in general. <laughs> so we mentioned that in the book, we just get a lot of different interludes with the sheriff, like his thoughts and opinions. But in the movie and in the book, we also get... You know, the sheriff kind of following in the trail that Moss and Sugar leave behind. In the book, even more than the movie, the sheriff is like following them from place to place, from crime scene to crime scene, right? We have the desert crime scene. Then we have the crime scene in Del Rio at the motel with the Mexicans. Then we have the other crime scene in Eagle Pass with the Mexicans. Like the sheriff is just trying to like follow along and all this crazy stuff keeps happening. In the movie, he doesn't show up at um, those other two crime scenes, but he is investigating and we kind of see him following um, the clues and he ends up meeting with Carla Jean at this point too to try to get her to talk to him about where her husband might be. And Carla Jean doesn't know at this point, but also is like, I mean, I don't know if I would tell you or not, like my my husband is like a very committed and focused man. Like, I don't think he's going to give up and... 
Uh, Bell is just trying to communicate to her that, like, he's involved with the worst people you could be involved in. And they will not stop at anything to find this money. And that your husband is basically a dead man if he doesn't seek help from someone. Mm -hmm. And clearly this has Carla Jean concerned and worrying. And it's in this scene, too, in the film that uh, Bell kind of starts meandering his mind and he mentions like the cattle stun gun. Yeah. And clearly kind of piecing together in his head. I love him just being like, oh, my mind wanders. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's not that, you know, he's like, doesn't want to tell her that this guy is killing people with like a cattle weapon. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of times when like Belle is kind of aware of stuff going on, but really doesn't tell anyone or like at least he's kind of like holding his cards close to his vest, you know. Moss is recovering in this hospital in Mexico. And when he wakes up, who is sitting there at his bedside with flowers? (laughs) I love the flowers. It's such a funny touch. It's uh, Wells, the other bounty hunter who's looking for sugar and is also trying to track down the money. And he tells Moss, like, listen, man, I know you have the money. It took me like three hours to find you. Also, I know where your wife is, and Sugar probably knows where your wife is. Yeah. So you got to work with me, or else you're all dead. Yeah, he was basically like, "Listen, give me give me the money, and then we can work together. I'll take I'll protect you. I'll take care of Sugar, and like we'll figure this out." And Moss doesn't want to work with him, and kind of makes a comment like, "Well, why shouldn't I just make a deal with this Sugar guy for the money?" And this is where we get Wells offering his perspective on Sugar and saying, you know, the thing about him is he doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> I love that. That once again, I think it describes him perfectly. Just great dialogue. Yeah. Like, how would you how would you describe him? Mm, I'd say he doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> it just it's so it's perfect. Like you said, it's like the best way to describe him. And he goes on to say, like, you can't make a deal with a guy like him. Right. And says, even if you gave him the money, he would kill you just for inconveniencing him. Right. And like he has these principles. He's crazy, but he has his own code that he follows. Right. And there's no way that he is going to spare your life. So he makes his case to Moss. Moss doesn't want to listen. But then Wells takes off and Wells actually ends up tracking down where the money is and knows where it is. Yeah. Just doesn't take it. And then goes back to his own hotel room. And of course, he's going up the steps and who's behind him but Sugar. I'm wondering here, like, how did Wells get surprised by Sugar? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because we're introduced to Wells as also being an experienced bounty hunter who knows Sugar. And he just kind of gets like blindsided by him. And, and yeah, I don't. It kind of undercuts his character in a lot of ways, but I also think that's like the point. Yeah, I don't no know. one's perfect, right? Yeah, and so Wells finds himself at gunpoint back in his hotel room across from Shiger, and they kind of just have this like whole conversation where Wells is like, "You are fucking crazy," because Shiger is like monologuing, yeah, and telling him like, "You should just accept your fate. Like there'd be more dignity in it." And Wells just keeps telling him, like, fuck you. Yeah, and kind of saying, like, I know where the money is. We can work together. Of course, Sugar doesn't want to hear it. 
I, I really love Woody Harrelson's performance here. Oh, he's so good. Because he's trying to play it cool, but you can see that he's terrified. Oh, yeah. He's so nervous. He like, I mean, he knows who he's dealing with. Yeah. And like, on one hand, he's trying to make this deal. Like, it's so funny. He was just telling Moss, like, you can't cut a deal with this guy. And then here he is now that his life is on the line. And he's like, just let me get the money, man. And then, like, you know, we can go our separate ways and... But, like, it's all pointless, right? Like, he knows it. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because, like, Sugar's, like, mission is to recover the money, like, technically speaking. And here is Wells saying, I know where it is. I can give it to you. But Sugar, I don't know. It's almost like in Sugar's mind, he's like, Moss is my adversary and I have to get him to get the money. I don't want to get the money through you. Yeah. I only want to do it by beating Moss. I have to defeat him. Yeah. And so he doesn't even want Wells to be like a character in this situation. No. Of course, in the film, while they're talking, the telephone rings, which is terrifying. Oh, my God. (laughs) And Sugar shoots him while the telephone's ringing. And it's interesting because they show it. The back of Wells' chair is to the camera. So when he gets shot, you see his arm jerk. And some, like, feathers go up, but you don't really see much of anything. Yeah, and then Shagur later in the phone call, like, picks his feet off the floor because there's blood pooling. Yes. You know? Which is a very, it, it, it's, a, it's a good detail here, but it becomes a very important detail later. Yeah, I just find this whole scene so interesting. And I don't know if we have mentioned it before, but, like, there's not any music yeah. in this movie. There is the slightest tonal i i don't even know if you'd want to call it music but ambience in a few scenes that's very subtle uh, i actually went back and watched a scene because i was like i think there's like a tone in the background <laughs> of this scene if i remember right and there is um but for the most part i mean there's absolutely no score in this whole film and I, it's so effective for that and i actually realized that the first time i watched it because there's a scene after Moss crosses the border where he's woken up oh, yeah. by like a mariachi band. <laughs> and not that I'm counting that as music, but hearing music in any capacity suddenly felt so jarring. Yeah, and, and you're I like, was oh, like, oh, wait, there's no music. Yeah, I was like, wow, there hasn't been any music this whole time. <laughs> like, it was so obvious as soon as I started hearing music that it felt so out of place in this movie. Yeah, I think it makes these scenes feel more tense, right? And especially... Sometimes shocking, too, when violence occurs because you're not expecting it, right? The music isn't, like, swelling or starting to feel ominous. So you're like, oh, my God, something's coming. It's just happening. I mean, I think of uh, Moss earlier in the film running across the planes away from the truck with them shooting at him. And just, like, I don't know, without music, you're almost just more engrossed in it right and like the the visuals of the scene and everything else like it just feels so much more raw and visceral without a score Mm -hmm. and the person that was calling on the phone uh is moss actually so moss was like gonna take wells up on his offer for help but uh wells is dead and (laughs) sugar answers and sugar is like you know who this is yeah and sugar like this is such a great conversation uh, Sugar is kind of taunting him. He's like, I know where you're at, but that's not where I'm going. Guess where I'm going. And of course, he knows where uh, Carla Jean is yeah. and is going to go pay her a visit. And he tells Moss, listen, if you come to me with the money, 
I will spare her. I won't get her involved. But if you don't, she's involved. So you have the choice of keeping her out of this or like putting her in danger, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I love the way this in the movie this is shot because you're only seeing the back of Moss. You're not seeing his face. And he says like, I'll, I'll bring you something. All right. I'm making you like a special project of mine. Yeah. And he hangs up the phone and then he kind of he hits the phone, the receiver off the phone a couple times. Like he's almost mad immediately that he he said that, you know, yeah. or what mad at what's happening. Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, things are, are getting bad. So Moss is realizing that he needs to get Carla Jean to safety because everybody knows where she lives. And she's with just with her mom right now. Yeah. So he calls her and is telling her that he's going to meet her somewhere and she's going to bring her mom because her mom is sick. Um, she's got the cancer. She's got the cancer. <laughs> I don't, I should have looked it up. I don't know who the actress who plays the mom is, if she's anybody or just like a. She was so funny. She's so, she's in the one scene (laughs) and telling the taxi driver about how she has the cancer. Yeah. And then Carla Jean, like when the taxi stops, she goes ahead to the bus station and a, uh. A nice Mexican man is helping the mother with the suitcases. I love the mom says it's not very often you see a Mexican in a suit <laughs> to him. Like, yeah. that, like that old woman, like, oh, God, no tact or anything. But I mean, this is actually a member of the cartel. And who's been tailing them. Who's been tailing them and kind of starts like, oh, where are you going? <laughs> and finds out like where they are planning to meet uh, Moss. It's actually like such a subtle moment yeah. that I think on your first viewing, you can very easily not realize what happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's it's the setup, right? It's the wheels being set into motion in the book. It's different because Carla Jean, Carla Jean does call the sheriff in both versions. She asks Sheriff Bell. She's like, I'm I'm worried about Moss. Like, I'm worried about him. Can you promise that you'll go just you to, to him if I tell you where he is and that no harm will come to him. And the sheriff promises that. In the movie, it's just that. And then the mom ends up revealing that they're where they're going <laughs> to this nice Mexican man. Um, but in the book, she calls the sheriff and the sheriff's phone line is tapped by the Mexican cartel. And so that's how they find out. Yeah. So, I mean, similar but different in both versions. Around this time, too... Shigur shows up. Is it Houston? I don't know. Uh, to to the city, to the office of this man who hired Wells, just walks in through the door while he's having a meeting and shoots him right in the throat. Yeah. In the movie, he calls out and says, you gave the like receiver to the Mexicans. Yeah. So implying that like, both Sugar and the Mexicans had this tracker that they could find the money and that Sugar viewed this as like a double crossing, right? Yeah. In the book, we don't get that at all. We just have him no. showing up and killing him, presumably in retaliation for hiring Wells, right? Yes, yeah. And I love in the film, there's the inclusion of this other character who was just in the office yeah, and like is terrified for his life, obviously. Uh, he has a line about like, he, exp- he explains the receiver thing to Shigur and he says, well, he thinks or I should say he thought <laughs> that, you know, kind of correcting himself. 
there's so many little things in this movie that are kind of connections. Like that line feels in in a way intentional. And there's another line earlier that's kind of a throwaway line that's funny where the deputy is talking about the bodies at the crime scene. And he says uh, they are he said they're Mexicans or they was Mexicans. Yeah. And uh, Bell gives a funny line about like, well, that's the question. At what point did they stop being Mexican? <laughs> It's it's kind of just like a funny line. Yeah. But it's almost like this recurring theme of like self and like when you stop being or existing or your identity kind of coming to an end in death. Right. Yeah. Like I'm kind of like making a big thing out of like these two. But like I just feel like there's so much intentionality with Coen Brothers films that even lines like that that are kind of funny or a little awkward in a in a funny way. There's like an intentionality there where it's almost like kind of drawing a thematic line. Yeah, in I, a way, I would definitely agree with that. I want to talk about something that's just in the book here, which is Moss is on his way to meet Carla Jean, right? Um, and he ends up picking up this girl who's hitchhiking, and this doesn't happen at all in the movie, but. She's young. She's like 15. Um, we never find out her name, and she's very cagey. She's clearly running away from home, right? And Moss is very much like trying to be nice to her. He like brings her along to these truck stops and like buys her meals, right? And like they eventually get to this hotel where he's waiting, and he gets her her own room, right? Like she kind of hits on him. Yeah. And then is like, what's the matter? Are you queer? <laughs> I love he's like, yeah, that's it. I'm queer. <laughs> yeah. He like just doesn't care. Right. Yeah. He's very much like, I'm not engaging with you. Eventually he's like, I, I have a wife, you know, ends up bringing her a beer, though. And they're like drinking beer together in her like the doorway of her hotel. Yeah. Room. He's not going in. Um, I think this is weird, though. Even though he doesn't do anything that's inappropriate with this girl at all, I think the shadow of it is always there. And I just don't really know why it's in the book. I I don't think, I mean, I think you're always a little suspicious, right? You're like, hmm. I think you're more so because by this point, you know that Moss married his wife when she was 16. Yeah. So they probably met before then, too. And this girl is roughly that age, right? Yeah. So I think that's reason enough to be a little suspicious. And also, I mean, the book spends quite a bit of time with them and like their conversations and their back and forth. And like they have a banter and a rapport very quickly where he kind of jokes with her yeah. and kind of is pulling her leg. Uh, and, you know, like we said, he's been very clear about boundaries and lines at, up till this point, right? About, like, this is your room. I'm not coming in. Uh, and, I mean, I don't know. The beer thing is, like, he gives her one beer. And I don't know. It's the 1980s. And, not, I, I like, <laughs> not that that's fine. But no. it's not the worst thing, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I, I also am curious about... Like, how this fits into the story as a whole. What it's saying about Moss. Thematically. Like, it feels like he's genuinely trying to help her. To me, part of it, for sure, is that this girl ends up getting killed. Yeah. In the book. And we didn't mention this, but earlier in his shootout with Shigur in Eagle Pass, 
he killed a woman accidentally. Uh, she was shot in the head by a stray bullet in this fight. And I think Wells, who discovered the body, he took a photo of it and gave it to Moss. I think he implied it was from that uh, shotgun shot that he fired at Shigur. Yeah. That a stray pellet from that killed this woman. So, like, it, it, it seems, the book seems to be a little bit more about the the cause and effect of Moss's actions and the way they hurt people who are like innocent un- people, innocent people who are unrelated. And I think she's definitely an extension of that. At least her fate is. Yeah. It just feels like unnecessary. Yeah. And I don't really know what these conversations have to say about Moss's character that we didn't already know. Right. Yeah. That he's just kind of a no nonsense, like very smart, kind of wry, sarcastic kind of guy, you know, and like, yeah, he's trying to help her, but yeah, ultimately she just gets caught in the crossfires of this. And I think the shadow of like, is this inappropriate? I mean, he doesn't do anything, but it's just something you're worried about the whole time when you're reading it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I, I read this book uh, years ago around the time the movie came out because I've been doing this for a long time, everybody. <laughs> I've been reading books based on movies for a long time. And this was the one thing that I remembered as being a big difference in the book and movie is the inclusion of this hitchhiker character. And I, thinking back on it, I was like, I don't think he sleeps with her, but I wasn't sure. You didn't remember. And I know why looking back, because it feels very tense in that way. Yeah. The movie does cut this, I think, smartly. There's just a scene of him talking to this woman at the hotel who's in the pool who kind of propositions him and is like, oh, want to drink some beers in my room? And he's like, no. Which is similarly gray, morally wise, like compared to The Hitchhiker, where At first, he's like, I know what beer leads to and I'm married. And she kind of says like, oh, beer leads to more beer. And he kind of smiles at her and leans forward. And you're like, oh, was he maybe going to? Yeah. Uh, Like, you don't ever really know. So similarly, like maybe he was going to be unfaithful to Carla. Maybe. Yeah. But it's kind of uncertain. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if there's like a morally or thematically, I'm kind of like grappling with how this ties into the story as a whole like it, it almost feels like what happens immediately after would almost is be because like of that cosmic punishment yeah like it, <laughs> but it's not it, it no but it feels so significant in uh the film especially because he's like oh flirting with this woman and then like two seconds later he's and dead. that's the last time we see him alive <laughs> yeah <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And the sheriff is on his way there and he pulls into the motel just in time to see a bunch of cop cars there. And he already knows what's happening. When he sees the cartel like hauling ass away. Yeah. Yeah. And he gets there. This is where that slight tone is played in the background Mm. as Belle shows up. And also the camera is handheld in this moment. One of the few instances of that in this film uh, right behind Bell, and he sees like a body in the pool. He sees another guy crawling away, and then there he finds Moss shot dead in the doorway. Yeah, I think this is so interesting because, like, I think a lot of people were outraged by this when they first saw it. For sure, like you killed the main character off, off screen? screen. Yeah, like he just got shot off screen, and we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think it's one of the things that kind of has been most well-remembered and enduring about this film is that it was so bold 
to do that. Yeah. And I think it says a lot about the movie in a way. It does. And I think it says a lot about what the movie is trying to say. Yeah. That death just happens to people and that violence is senseless and chaotic. Right. And someone who has seemed to be doing all the right things and staying one step ahead, like in a single moment can just lose everything. Yeah. Well, and I think it's especially effective at putting you in Belle's perspective of going there and he's dead. Yeah. You know, and you missed all of it. Like he was too late. Right. Yeah. And ultimately, like, not that Belle is the main character. He is in the book, I'd say. He for sure, because, yeah, all those uh, asides are like, points of view of him kind of go throughout but like i'd say in the movie i think tommy lee jones even has the least amount of screen time out of the main three uh but i would say like you don't quite know he's the main character almost until this moment and it it kind of settles in right as he arrives too late to like help moss yeah to realize that oh my god moss is dead we're not following his story anymore no right out of it it's very shocking There's this scene, too. He has to tell Carla Jean, of course, that Moss is dead, and it's really devastating for her. But then Sheriff Bell is kind of talking and having dinner with this other sheriff from the area, and the two of them are kind of just discussing, like, the world and criminals and policing, and it's very much like what you would expect of, like, two old men, two old white (laughs) men being like, oh, back in the day, like, we would never have anything like this, and can you believe the kids nowadays with their green hair? Yeah, and, like, and their piercings and all that stuff. Yeah, but it also is kind of, like, talking about their time as sheriffs and, like, the job changing, and we're seeing Belle confronting all of this senseless violence. And like you said, arriving too late to do anything in every single situation, right? And he's not able to fix anything. And he's just starting to feel, I think, a lot of despair. Yeah, I I love... The one thing about Bell that I love the most, and I would say it even comes through more in the book, just because you're in his perspective more, he's very disillusioned but also just uncertain, right? And there's so many times he'll make a statement and then he'll kind of immediately question it, right? Like at one point he says like, these young police officers, they don't know how good they've got it these days. Well, maybe they do. Like he'll immediately question the statement that he just made Mm -hmm. or like not really know how to put things in perspective. And I think that's so rare in a character especially in fiction because so many characters have very clear um, points of view and oftentimes they'll like really be delivering like their own worldview and like monologues and like, yes. And like, you're like, not that it's always like an author insert, but a lot of times it feels like, ah, this is the author going (laughs) on about their own beliefs. But I think it's so rare to have a character that's very much like, I don't know anything that's going on i'm very lost and i think the uncertainty is such a big part of his character because we talk about him being disillusioned and defeated but he's not bitter he's just no he just doesn't know what to do anymore and i think that's a very vulnerable and relatable feeling and so we can really relate to sheriff bell's character in this story and understand where he's coming from and yeah i just like really appreciate him especially in the book getting his perspective on all this. But like his conversation with this other sheriff ends up triggering something in his memory where he's like, I'm going back to the crime scene. 
And he goes and he gets there and he sees that the lock has been blown out. He made a comment because because <laughs> he killed Wells in that same hotel that he had just been in. Yeah. And they were like the fucking balls on this guy to go back to that hotel. Back to the crime scene. I think he killed the, yeah. the guy at the desk again. Yeah. Like whoever they replaced <laughs> the other guy with. The first receptionist at the motel was killed. Then they got a new guy. Yes. And then Sugar killed that guy also. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, and so commenting on that and his, his like ability to go back to a crime scene, I think, is what triggered that thought for uh, Bell. So he goes back to the motel, discovers the lock has been punched out. And it's worth noting in this scene in the film, this is the only time he's drawn his gun. Even when they were going to go into Moss's uh, trailer earlier in the movie, it w- once again, it was played off as like a joke where the deputy pulled his gun. Yeah, and he's like, you go first. Yeah, he's like, I'm right behind you. <laughs> But, like, now he's alone and he's drawing his gun. And we do get a shot of Shigur in the room, like, behind the door waiting with his gun. Uh, And eventually, Belle pushes the door open and it's empty. No one's there. And he goes into the bathroom and the window latch is undone. And I guess it's... I've heard... I've read different people's theories on this. Some people thought Shigur wasn't actually there or like it was in his imagination or he had been there, but it was earlier and it was like a, I don't know. I don't think it matters, but yeah, um, but he's not there. And all that uh, the sheriff finds is the air vent cover having been removed yeah. and it's empty. Here's a question to Dina. And I want to know if you had the same thought I did. When you look at that air vent, could the case have fit in there? I don't know. It looked really tight. Because, like, it's square at the front, but then, like, a few inches in, it goes into, like, like a, a circular. Yeah. And I'm like, is it just the scale that isn't trans? Because it's kind of hard to tell how. But I'm like, I don't think it could have fit in there. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know if it could have either. Which I tried reading, and I'm like, has anyone else, like, quest? <laughs> and I couldn't find anyone. In my mind, it makes it ambiguous as to who has the money. Yeah. Because maybe Moss was going to put the money in that spot again and was like, oh, it won't fit. And he couldn't. And then maybe the cartel got it. Surprised. Yeah. Or maybe that's the first place uh, Shigur looked. But then it was somewhere else or maybe it did fit in there and he got it. Well, the book does tell you explicitly he, yeah. that Shigur gets the money. He does get it in the, the book for sure. Because he brings it to like another vague businessman mm-hmm. and is like, here's your money back. And then it's kind of like, let's go into business together. Very surprising. This is my job interview surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about me killing you. Just forget about that. Or yeah. like the possibility of it. Yeah. Just picture me as a regular old <laughs> businessman. I think he kind of like intimidates this man into going into business with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a very interesting scene that isn't in the film at all. No. And I get why it isn't because it just makes sense to keep it a little more contained. But yeah, like Shigur gets away, but it seems like Belle's going to be able to confront him. In the book, there's a scene where like Shigur's in the parking lot and Belle like pulls out and calls for backup. But somehow Shigur gets away out of the parking lot before the police can show up. Um, So like they don't have this confrontation, right? And then uh, we have a very pivotal scene where we see Carla Jean at the funeral for her mother 
because she's died of the cancer. The cancer. The <laughs> cancer got her. The cancer got her. Uh, she comes back to her house. And who's there but Sugar? This scene is so well written. Because Carla Jean is just kind of like, I just need to sit. Like, she almost knows I can't run. And she says something like, I knew this wasn't over. And Sugar kind of tells her, like, your husband had the choice to save you and he didn't. And she's like, I mean, he's dead, though. Like, why are you still, like, honoring this promise? And he essentially tells her, like, well, like, I promised him and he might be dead, but I'm not. So I have to, like, honor what I said I would do. Yeah. I really, really love Carla Jean in the movie. Yes. Because she's devastated, right? Like, she lost her husband. Her mother is dead. I think she, at this point, is not okay with dying, but has lost so much that she understands what's happening and is, like, kind of more accepting, I guess. And I just want to, like, quote what she says in mm. the movie because it's so interesting because she she keeps telling Sugar, like, you don't have to do this. And he's like, that's what they all say. Yeah. They all say that. Um, and then he's like, here's what I'll do for you. I'll flip a coin, right? And we know we've seen yes. this before. And so he says, this is the best I can do. Call it. I knowed you was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I knowed exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No, I ain't gonna call it. Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. Well, I got here the same way the coin did. And I love that she refuses to call it. Yeah. And she is calling him while she's refusing to call it, right? She's saying, the coin don't have no say. Yeah. It's just you. It's always been just you, right? You can say that it's fate and chance or chaos or whatever that's deciding, but it's you. Ultimately, you're making the choice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so effective and it's it has to be said and it's so frustrating that in the book she just comes across so much weaker and I don't want to say like, you know, her life is being threatened. So it's, yeah. it's not weakness, but like she's sobbing and she says a lot of the same things to be fair. Like she says, like, it's not up to the coin like you were doing this, but then also she does call it. Yeah. And she's wrong. And she continues to say, like, it's not the coin, it's you, right? But, like, I don't know. It's so much better in the film, like, her being more composed and maybe just more angry and just not giving in to his rules, right? The rules that he's establishing and that he's pretending, like, oh, this is just fate. Mm -hmm. Because his whole thing is, like, I mean, he's all about fate, right? And he just sees himself as, like, an 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 agent of it, right? That he's just, like, like he said, I got here the same way the coin did. Yeah. Like, I'm at your doorstep due to circumstances that are just, like, out of all of our control, right? hmm And she's like, no, that's bullshit. Fuck you. Yeah. And it's so great in the film. Uh, and this is, oh, my God, like, just such great and devastating filmmaking because you just see it cuts to, after he gives that line about the coin, it cuts to Shigur leaving her house and checking the bottom of his shoes. And you know, you know, I mean, if you were paying attention, 
when he lifted his feet up from the blood of Wells that he killed her. And there's something interesting, and there's probably multiple things to say about this, but, like, there's such an interesting approach to violence in this film that the book doesn't do quite as much. But, like, there's a de-escalation of violence in this movie. Mm -hmm. It starts off almost immediately with the strangulation of that deputy. Arguably the most violent and visceral scene in the whole film. And there's a lot of other violent parts, too, right? Uh, The motel shootout, for example. There's a good bit of shooting and violence uh, at the Eagle Pass shootout between Moss and Shiger. And then Moss, when he shoots Wells, you kind of don't see Wells getting shot, right? Yeah. And then when Moss is killed, you don't see him get killed. You just see his body afterwards. And now Carla Jean is shot, and you don't see anything but him checking the bottom of his shoes. Yeah. And there's something like, I don't, there's a lot of different ways to read it. In my mind, it's almost like the, the point of view of the film, as if it were a person observing these events, is almost like desensitized to the violence at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like at first, it's almost a spectacle. And at this point now, it's almost like, well, what's the point of even showing you? Yeah, you know what's happening, yeah. right? You know what to see and why should we show you more, right? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. This is very, it's almost like even more devastating to just see that simple detail of him checking his shoes, right? Because your heart just drops knowing what's happened to Carla Jean. And he gets in his car and he's driving and then all of a sudden he's hit by a car. <laughs> Talk about fate, right? Like, out of nowhere. Yeah. And he, like, limps out of the car. In the book, it's explicit that uh, two of the three people that were in the other car die Yeah, in this car accident. Like, it's a really bad car accident. This car is going really fast. These kids in the car were, like, high or drunk and just T-bone him. His arm is broken in two places. There's, like, a bone sticking out. (laughs) I love when the two teenagers come up to him. And this is an addition to the movie. The one teenager just keeps going, you got a bone sticking out of your arm. (laughs) And then later he's like, look at that fucking bone. (laughs) He just keeps commenting on it, and it's so funny. Um, But, yeah, you just can't help but read that this is, like, some kind of karmic justice. And what's interesting is... You can interpret this differently in the film than I think you can the book. Because in the film, I think you can easily assume that Carla Jean didn't call the coin toss, right? And that in a lot of ways, his murder of Carla Jean was kind of done out of spite. Was going above and beyond. Yes. And that this is almost some like kind of karma coming coming for him for like almost going outside of his own moral code right Mm -hmm. but the book has the car accident too but also like carla jean did call the coin and so you don't feel like that's quite the same thing i mean it just does feel like chaos right yeah just chaos of life Mm -hmm. that even if you are this perfect agent of death right that like life is coming for you no matter what you know, and yeah. that something's going to get you. And that he's vulnerable. Yeah. You know, he's human, right? Yeah. He might not seem that way, but yeah, he can break and bleed. But I mean, he gets away. So, you know, it's not like he gets his his justice, right? He gets a little bit of pain given to him in addition to all the hurt and death and suffering that he's caused. But, you know, I wouldn't say that 
necessarily karma comes for him. It's right? like a reminder. Yeah. Like you said, like he gets away, but like he's shaken and it's just kind of this reminder that he's not... I mean, he's compared multiple times to, like, the devil or the bubonic plague <laughs> or these larger-than-life uh, forces of nature, right? And then in this moment, he's so human, like he's hurt in a car accident. I also want to mention the great parallel here of he, when the boys approach, he asks for one of their shirts, and he gives them $100 for it. And that's so similar to when Moss was crossing into Mexico and he bought a coat off of uh, one of those, like, college students. Yeah. Like, them both paying for someone's clothing to kind of, like, help them in that moment. There's a lot of interesting parallels created just visually and between their actions, between Moss and Shigur, and even... Even Belle. Even Belle, to a degree. Like, I think about... The er reflections in that TV Yes, the reflections in the TV and how Belle was also just sitting there drinking milk. Uh, And, like, Moss... I'm trying to remember in the movie... In the... In the movie, Moss picks up, like, his... uh, uh, The bullet casing after he shot the animal (laughs) in, in the wilderness... And, like, I remember at least reading about that in the book a lot, that Shigur would always be picking up the shell casings and, like, putting them in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And those parallels to, like, hunting animals, too. Yeah. But, like, yeah, like, in some ways these characters are painted as polar opposites, you know, especially between Belle and Shigur. But they're still being, like, these comparisons made constantly. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, So he gets the shirt like creates a little sling for his arm, hobbles off and is like, you didn't see me to these kids. Um, And that's the last we really see of him. Yeah. We kind of switch to uh, Sheriff Bell's perspective here. He goes to visit his uncle Ellis and we find out from like their dialogue and from reading the book that he was a deputy previously and that he ended up getting shot by someone and like, paralyzed or some kind of injury because of it and the two of them are just kind of talking about the job and ellis is like i heard you're quitting and bell is like i'm outmatched you know i can't do this anymore like i've kind of reached my limit and they're just talking about the job and the country and ellis kind of tells this story about like one of their other family members like a great aunt or uncle or something and just This, like, violent story, right, about something that happened in their family and kind of, like, counteracting Bell's perspective of, like, times have changed, right? Yeah. He's kind of like, this country has always been hard. There's always been this violence here. Yeah, and I really, I I was, like, craving this perspective throughout the book, right? Because, like, Bell's constantly saying, like, ah, time, like, people these days, like, they don't say ma'am and sir anymore (laughs) and also the cartels beheading people and i'm like those are very different things sir (laughs) and i love ellis bringing this perspective of like yeah our our great uncle in 1907 was gunned down on his porch by people like for no reason right and just the idea that like and i mean you could you could extend this example throughout all of human history like the fucking crusades and medieval torture and execution and like people have been doing fucked up shit For all of human history, right? But I do think there's a perspective that's valid from Belle of being like, I've never experienced anything like this. And you can't ignore that, like, 
times do change and especially from a technological standpoint and like with drugs yeah you know and like the cartel and that this things are different right and i think the book rides that line pretty well of being like on one hand human nature probably hasn't changed but also the means of violence and the things we can do to each other has changed yeah and you know where's that line and it just kind of being really uncertain in that way yeah in the book this conversation extends and we hear more about bell's past he talks to his uncle ellis and he's like listen i gotta get something off my chest i was in world war ii i was this decorated veteran for being this war hero and i have to tell you the real story real story is that me and my company were trapped and we got caught in this building explosion. Everybody but me was like injured or buried in rubble. And I was kind of holding off these German forces, but I knew I couldn't hold them off forever. And when night fell, I left and I left those men behind. And he says like, I didn't know if they were alive or not because I couldn't like they were initially like I could hear them. And then they, I couldn't hear them anymore, right? And, like, if I stayed, I probably would have been killed. But that this has, like, haunted him for his whole life, that he didn't stay and didn't, like, try to help these men when maybe he thought he should have, whether he could have helped them or not, right? And that he says, like, my whole life I've almost been trying to make up for what I've done. Yeah. And I've tried to be a good person and live a good life. But I think showing this vulnerability and giving this perspective to this character who seems just so morally upright the whole time is very interesting to show that, like, maybe the reason that he is so good is because he did make a mistake or that he feels like he did. Well, and I, I love this, too, because you can so easily compare it to Moss, who, you know, if he had gotten out of this situation alive might have become what Bell is today. He might have thought back to this, like, thing that he did that was a huge mistake and, like, oh, God, I wish I'd never taken that money. I wish I'd never put people in danger. And, like, because Bell talks about, like, it was this pivotal thing in my past that I always was trying to be better than, right? Yeah. And I think Moss easily could have been the same way. We talked about how Moss is kind of that in-between of... Bell's goodness and Sugar's, like, chaotic evil, right? Mm -hmm. And you could see how Moss, if he had gotten out of this, could have been like Bell. Yeah. And I think that's really effective and very clear. And I also think it's interesting how, once again, thematically, you know, Bell in explaining this story tells Alice, because Alice is like, I mean, once night fell, you couldn't have defended them anymore and you would have just gotten yourself killed, right? And He said, yeah, but also that's what I signed up for. Like, we all agreed to be there for each other, even in the face of death. Yeah. And I didn't stick to that agreement. And you can't help but compare it to Sugar and his moral code and how he made this promise to pursue Carla Jean. Yeah. Even after Moss was dead, right? Mm -hmm. Like, holding on to this, like, moral code. In the face of, like, rational... Yes. Yeah. And how, in a way, like, we think of this idea of, like, code and honor as being, like, a human thing that distinguishes us from the animals, right? And we talked a lot about how so much of this story compares people to animals, right? And that, like, usually those ideas of, like, 
holding on to promises or commitments is like human, right? But like in this way, Sugar's character that is all about that is a fucking sociopath and a killer and twisted. And in this moment, Bell in his past, like didn't honor that commitment, but like it saved his life in a very rational way. Yeah. Like instead of just him throwing his wife away needlessly, trying to defend this pile of rubble. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. It's kind of this like question of like morality and our human and our, principles and yeah, our instincts and like what de- separates us from animals. I don't know. Yeah. And in the book, too, um, Bell ends up following up more after Carla Jean's killed, ends up like interviewing the two teenage boys who had encountered Shigur just to try to figure out, like, who is this man? What happened? And ultimately, he just has to give up because there are no answers and he's never going to find this man. He calls him like a ghost and then ends up quitting the force. And then in the book and movie, we get the final scenes to close out this story where Bell is retired now. He's kind of not knowing what to do with himself. And there's this conversation he has with his wife in the movie, and it's it's one of the monologue interludes in the book where he's remembering these dreams that he had about his father. And the first one is just, uh, oh, we were in town and he gave me some money for something. But the second one he remembers more, and the second one is, you know, they're riding on this mountain and it's dark and it's snowing and they're in some kind of storm and he sees his father ride up ahead of him past him and he's holding like a horn with fire in it like they used to right when you had to carry your fire with you and he's like and I knew that he was going on ahead and that he would be making a fire and that if I just kept going I would come to him and we would be together And then I woke up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, like, there's such strong connotations of, like, death. Yeah. And the afterlife and, like, the people that precede us in death, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it being, I don't know, it's it's just very contemplative and interesting and kind of talking about your time being over. Yeah. And kind of just trying to be at peace with that in a way. Uh, It's such a meditative and contemplative ending to this movie and book compared to how it began. I know. With like finding drug money and being on the run and being <laughs> shot at and like uh outsmarting your, you know, your enemy and Yeah. Uh and I, I think once again people when they saw this movie they were like What? What the fuck? <laughs> what? What happened? But that's the end. Yeah. Uh which one's better, Ian? Oh god, I I, I really, I haven't decided on this yet. This is really one of those cases where the book and the movie are such good companions to they each are. other. They are. I felt like the questions I had in the movie, when I read the book, I was like, oh, that guy's his uncle. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's talking to Ellis this whole time, and I'm like, are they, how are they relating? Like, what's their relationship? <laughs> is that real? I, I never once, I was like, I don't know, he probably, he just knows him. Yeah, and then I was like reading the book, and I'm like, oh, it's his uncle, great. Yeah, I think, like, there's a little bit of extra detail in the book, but not much. Like, it's really very similar, and I feel like the movie really, like, visually brings to life so much from the book. And, like, I enjoyed the book, but I just think, like, the movie is basically technically perfect. Yeah. Like, how it's made. Um, I will say, though, so 
I watched this for the first time with Ian, yeah. like when we first started dating. And I was like, I didn't really like that. <laughs> because it's fucking depressing. It is. And when you don't know what to expect and you see the main character die off screen. Yeah. Uh, that's very shocking. But for me, the thing that really made me dislike this movie was Carla Jean being killed. Yeah. Because for me, that was like a line, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, now it's like gone too far for me. But I think watching it again and knowing what's coming, I had a much better perspective and I could enjoy the movie for what it was, right? Because the first time watching it, I just thought it was so, it was like too shocking and too sad. Yeah. And I think I liked it more and I could appreciate it more watching it again and knowing what was going to happen and like being able to like mentally and emotionally prepare myself. I will say though, I still don't prefer it. Like I like it and I think it's like a technically perfect film. I don't think it's a film for me. Yeah. Because for me, it's too dark, right? For me, it's just too depressing and I finish it and I'm like, God, <laughs> that was... I mean, it that is, was rough. It is really bleak. But I can appreciate what it is. And I think that what it's done and what the Coen brothers have done with it is elevating the book. So I think I would say that I would choose a film in this situation. I'm glad you had that experience on the rewatch because <laughs> I, I, I know how you felt the first time and that it was very heavy and that it wasn't your favorite movie, to put it mildly. So I'm, I I have kind of like held back on wanting to do this episode because I knew you weren't the craziest about this film. But like, I'm glad you were able to enjoy it kind of for what it was. Yeah, uh, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think the book does, I think, expand on certain ideas and themes uh, in a way like I like finding out about Bell's history like in World War Two yeah. and some other details and like kind of getting maybe a little bit more of his perspective because like the book especially like has this real long cooldown period after the action settles where it's just Bell contemplating his place yeah. in the world and like aging and wondering what the future holds for like the world right and like Am I over exaggerating and thinking that everything's changed? Like, hasn't everyone in human history felt this way? Which, you know, a lot of that stuff I thought was like really interesting. But like you said, the Coen brothers like touches in this film are just so everything is just so finely tuned. The editing, the cinematography, the dialogue, the performances uh, I mean, just like everything about this movie is so technically perfect mm -hmm. uh, that I also think I'm going to go with movie on this. Yeah. All right. It's a movie for both of us. Uh, let's do lightning round. Yeah, let's get into lightning. OK, first up, Adina, this factoid, I'm like, how have I not heard this before? What? And it ties very specifically to this film. So it's mentioned in a line of dialogue, at least in the film, maybe the book, too. I can't remember. Uh, Bell mentions like something about a federal judge being killed like a while back. And this is based on a true event. OK. A federal judge in Texas was uh, murdered. Wow. By a man named Charles Harrelson. Who was Woody Harrelson's father. What? 
He was a contract killer, Adina. What? Woody Harrelson's dad. I will say it again. Woody Harrelson's dad was a hired gunman. Oh, my God. And apparently he was not really around in his growing up. Yeah. But I mean, uh, Woody Harrelson had like two other brothers and uh, like he hadn't seen his dad for a long time. And then in 1981, uh, this news broke that. Uh, the murder of this federal judge was linked to him. Oh, my God. And he God. got put in jail for it. Wow. So, like, the timing is accurate, too. It happened yeah. in 1980. <laughs> oh, my God. Here's the other thing, Adina. Matthew McConaughey. Oh, I've heard this. May possibly be Woody Harrelson's brother. I've heard this theory. Half-brother. Yeah. And it's to the dad. Oh, really? To Charles Harrelson. Oh, my God. The contract killer. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey may share the same father, the same murdering contract killer father as Woody Harrelson. That's so wild. I I had also heard that aspect, but I had no idea. No. About the murderer part of no, it. No, me either. Oh my God, that is so insane. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, I love that they got Woody Harrelson to be in this then. I know. That's so funny. Uh, thing I want to mention from Lightning Round in the book is that uh, Shigur goes to... Carla Jean's mom's house at one point in the book and they're not there and he goes in and is just like looking at their stuff right uh sleeps in Carla Jean's bed oh yeah takes a couple pictures of her to keep showers in their shower (laughs) then eats breakfast like cereal there he eats their food (laughs) and I'm like is this like is this like a sexual thing? Like, what are you doing? Like, first you're drinking milk in their trailer. Now you're eating cereal in their, like, showering in their house. Like, it's weird, right? Yeah. I don't like it. Mm. I Maybe at this point I was just desensitized to everything <laughs> that he was doing, but I, I hardly thought about this for two seconds. I will say slightly tying into this, though, it happened in the film that after they left, he found their phone bill and, like, saw where they made calls. Yeah. And then he does the same thing. At Carla Jean's mom's house. Yeah. And I'm like, were they sending phone bills to these people like every day? I know. It's in like the 1980s? up to the minute. Yeah. It's yeah. like, hey, yesterday, these are all the calls you made. Because <laughs> it happens twice. And I'm like, I know. How frequent were these phone bills back then? It's a little too convenient. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one last small thing. And this is kind of interesting. The year that No Country for Old Men came out was also the year There Will Be Blood came out, which kind of... Looking back on it blows your mind because these are considered like two of the best, if not the two best films of like the 21st century so far. Yeah. And they both. Or at least that decade, right? Especially that decade. And they both came out the exact same year. And the fact that like There Will Be Blood didn't get Best Picture uh, is kind of like just on a technical level alone and performance level is like mind blowing. Yeah. But also they were basically neighbors during filming at points. Really? Uh, no Country for Old Men actually had to shut down production for a day because there was a smoke cloud in the air from when they were testing like one of the oil rig fire sets <laughs> oh my for God. There Will Be Blood, <laughs> which was like, I think out of sight, but like the smoke wasn't. And so they had to, like, shut down production. Oh, my God. But it's just so funny that these two movies were in production at the same time and came out the same year and were both competing. Well, and I think they were strategic, too, because obviously Daniel Day-Lewis 
Like, did he win that year? Yes, he yeah, won. He won that year, but they were like, oh, Javier Bardem, we'll put him in supporting yes. actor. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. yeah. Just kind of wild that both of those movies, and both being like kind of westerns too, yeah. in a lot of ways. And also very dark. And oh my God, like the most <laughs> And dark. really depressing. I didn't, have you seen There Will Be Blood? No, but I know it's okay. very upsetting. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> I just hadn't thought you'd seen it, so. <laughs> I just want to call out finally that Kelly McDonald who plays Carla Jean. Listen, I don't know what a Texan accent should sound like, but to me, it sounds perfect, right? She has a great accent. This woman is Scottish. This woman plays Diane in Trainspotting, which is the teenage love interest of Mark Renton, Ewan McGregor's character. And I was like, she looks so familiar. Who is she? As soon as I looked her up, I'm like, oh my God, this woman is Scottish. (laughs) I think she does a great accent, so I just have oh, to shout her out. I, I watched an interview. I heard Tommy Lee Jones also like commend her on her accent, saying it was spot on. <laughs> I saw it in an interview with the Coen Brothers once again. They're they're just so funny. They were talking about casting the movie and like you know getting Josh Brolin and that being perfect because he's actually from Texas and he like brought that authenticity and he knows a lot of people like Moss and of course Tommy Lee Jones also being generally from the area <laughs> and like how perfect he was and they're like. And then, of course, we uh, rounded things out by getting McDonald to play uh, (laughs) Carla Jean, (laughs) a Scottish woman. Yes. (laughs) But they were like, yeah, we didn't know if she could do it or not. But then she showed up and did the accent. We're like, that's perfect. (laughs) So good. Yeah. That wraps up Lightning Round. And that wraps up our episode as well. Thank you so much for listening to this one. It was very interesting and cool to talk about this book and movie combo. And if you'd like to support us, you can do that on Patreon. Patrons get first dibs on uh, episode requests. So we do a lot of Patreon requested episodes. So if there's something that you'd like us to do an episode on, the best way to do that is to become a patron. Patrons also get access to our monthly bonus episodes. We just came out with one on time loop films yes where we discussed groundhog day palm springs and happy death day to tie into our edge of tomorrow episode so you get that bonus episode many other bonus episodes so it's just great to join patreon yeah also access to our private discord where we are constantly chatting with our patrons and all kinds of great stuff if you can't become a patron, please uh, find us on apple Podcasts or spotify and give us a positive rating or star review which is very helpful Find us on Instagram, find us on Facebook, uh, find our email. You can find all of that at coveredcredits.com. Find us. Find us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks again for listening to this episode. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.